I'm more excited to be talking to you about task management. You are going to love it. We have to accept that tech is coming into the world and we have to prepare our, our pupils for the real world. This method is really a game-changing way of invigilating, to be honest. Welcome to the Surpass Community Podcast. Hello and welcome to a special Surpass Community Podcast. I'm your host for today, Ben Brady. This episode features a recording of a presentation given at the SPAS conference earlier this year, uh, October 2020. This episode today features a recording of the presentation given by David Price, OBE. The full presentation is available at conference.surpass.com and we would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, so once you've listened to the podcast, please become a part of the SPAS community by joining us for future digital events and subscribing to the mailing list at surpass.com slash signup. Finally, we would like to thank all of our contributors for the conference. It has been an absolutely amazing conference. We've had some wonderful feedback this year. Uh, In the interest of transparency, presentations are created independently by our speakers. And as such, the views expressed by speakers do not necessarily reflect those of BTL Group Limited or the Surpass team. So just to clarify, um, this is the audio taken from the original presentation at the conference. We've put it into podcast format because we know that a lot of you find this more accessible and have more chance to listen at home. If you do have any questions or would like to see slides, then again, they can be seen at conference.surpass.com. But I will now hand over to our speaker. Hello, my name is David Price and I'm really delighted to be speaking to you today at the conference. I, I believe that the, the, the focus of the conference is, is really urgent um, and I just want to share a few thoughts by way of, of, of kicking it off. So the plan really for my presentation is to pick up on the, you know, what's been described as the exams fiasco uh, and to say what, what are the learning moments from that. Um, and then I want to look at what was already a momentum for change around the world before the pandemic and how that can actually be built upon and how we can ride that wave of change. Uh, And then finally, I want to look at, uh, take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Um, I've just published a book called The Power of Us, um, and I'd like to share some thoughts on that because I think they're uh, appropriate to the future of of assessment. Okay, so let's get straight at it. Um, Now, the the exams fiasco, as it will ever be be described, I know that it has involved some of you personally and I just want to share my sympathy for you because I think what we've heard a lot of is, you know, the anxiety of students and the anxiety of parents. Um, There's been a lot of blame seeking, but we haven't really heard much about the position that it's placed a lot of people who are watching this in, the people who got stuck in the middle. and, And for whatever it's worth, and you know, my voice doesn't really count in the grand scheme of things, but I just wanted to, to say, I, I'm sorry you, you got caught up in all this. It must have been horrendous. So I suppose for me, the big issue is, you know, what can we learn from, from all of this? Um, in my book, I, I interview a guy called Gary Ridge. He's a CEO of WD40 company. Um, and, and he talks about learning moments. He, he doesn't talk about mistakes. He, he actually believes that what we need to do is to see how we can learn from that. And that way we always win. Um, and it seems to me that the English government in the search for someone to blame 
um, hasn't really shown any desire to learn or to change in future. And I think that's a, that's a great pity. But I think it's all our responsibilities to remind them of that uh, possibility. Um, and, you know, the, the, the problem was not the mutant algorithm, for goodness sakes. If there was a, anything to blame, it was the misplaced belief in the sanctity of standardization. Um, and I also think that this belief that we've had in, in the norm reference gold standard um, of our terminal exams, I, I wonder whether it's still suitable in a, in a, in a non-standard world. And it seems to me that at no point since Mike Tomlinson, and, and that really ages me, um, but at no point since then have we, have we properly looked at alternatives. I think we have within the industry, and that's to everybody's credit who's watching this. But I'm not sure that uh, at, at government level that we've really looked at alternatives. And I think this is the moment now. Um, the other thing which we've, we should have learned from, from this whole episode is that We've, we've seen a unique time when parents have been engaged and employers have been engaged um, in assessment and, and the learning, perhaps more so than we've seen for decades. And, and I would ask, can we turn those parents and employers into advocates for change? Because I don't believe anybody's happy with the current situation. Um, and then the final point is that the, you know this fiasco has, has threatened to wipe out the broader learnings of the past six months. And I think there have been many positives that we've seen during lockdown. Will we see a systematic study of what they have been and, and how they can be incorporated going forwards? Um, when we've had these kind of events, the classic response is, is, was memorably summed up by uh, Rahm Emanuel when he was uh, Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration. And after the global financial crisis, he famously said, you never want a serious crisis, go to waste. Well, that wasn't all he said. It's what gets reported. But what he said afterwards is what I think is really interesting. And what I mean by that, he said, is an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. And this, it seems to me, is our opportunity to do things differently that we thought we couldn't do before. You've only got to look at the way in which um, schools and colleges were able to flip almost overnight to remote learning, to see that blended learning that we've been saying is going to be problematic for decades. It's, it's maybe not as difficult as we thought it was going to be. Before I get into what I think needs to change and, and what some of the alternatives uh, that we need to look at are, I, I want to just issue a caveat. I, I am not, and I repeat, I'm not against testing. My issue really is that I think we need a more nuanced and a more sophisticated range of tests which are going to truly accredit uh, the full range of, of students' capabilities and talents. So having said that, let's look at perhaps how things could be differently. The first thing I think is maybe we should just accept that the way things were before wasn't so great anyway. Let's face it, over the past two, three decades, assessment has gone from being a core part of the learning process to being the sole reason for learning. And, and I don't think that's healthy for anyone. Before lockdown, we were already seeing the impact of, of, of stress on our students. Um, and of course, that's only increased uh, during lockdown. And I wonder if we can be content with a, a system that factors in a proportion of students having a bad day, in inverted commas. That to me seems to be about what students don't know rather than assessing what they do know. 
The second thing is, is maybe you should accept that for employers, the, the old normal wasn't so great either. And they were starting to reject the currency of qualifications. This was a study carried out last year. And you can see that the, the number of employers who are making those um, first appointments who were using a degree classification has fallen over the past four years from 76% to 52%. Uh, and we're seeing also a, a decline in air levels um, as a yardstick for appointments. And the, the striking thing is that we're seeing those, the number of employers for whom they, they're not even looking for a degree, that's doubled over the last four years. And we're not talking about, you know, your local plumber or your builders. We're talking about Google. We're talking about Ernst & Young. We're talking about PricewaterhouseCoopers. Say, we're not interested in your degree. Show us what you can do. So I think that was already starting to happen. And of course, the other thing is, is that, you know, terminal exams, let's face it, they kind of sucked the air out of an already overly congested curriculum. And we saw that noticeably in a, a CBI report, which came out last year, um, which, which talked about 47% of teachers were saying that the, 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 the obsessive focus on terminal exams was squeezing out the kind of employability skills that employers are saying are, are vital. Um, so I, I think there's a, a rebalancing which, which will need to take place here. So the third lesson, I think, is let's seize this opportunity, you know, because there was already a momentum for change which was building around the world. And I want to just spend just a couple of minutes with a couple of examples of, of, of how that was being manifested. Um, the OECD recently talked about the fact that the coronavirus pandemic could change education forever. And frankly, I hope that it does. Um, I, I think change has always been incremental in, in education. And we saw throughout the, the pandemic, we saw the acceleration of innovation across the board in all sorts of um, aspects of our lives. So why should education be any different? Um, we were already seeing in Australia, where I, I do quite a lot of work, their equivalent of their the, the, the A-levels, it's a thing called ATAR, it's a ranking, a single-figure ranking. Um, that was being questioned and, and saying, can we not replace this with a kind of learner profile which would be more useful for universities? Um, and, and, and in the US, there's been a growing kind of sense that standardised testing wasn't really fit for purpose anymore. So we were seeing this momentum, but it wasn't just a, a problem in search of a solution. We, there actually are alternatives that are out there being implemented right now. And I think we can take some heart from them really. Uh, the Mastery Trust Transcript is one such initiative and I, I need to declare an interest in this. Um, I'm one of the international advisors uh, for the Mastery Transcript Consortium. Um, uh, and I think it's a really thrilling initiative. It's a collection of schools, both in the private sector in the US and government schools, but that's now broadened around the world. There are, there are dozens and dozens of countries who are part of this consortium, and they are partnering with universities and colleges to say, can we find a better university transcript and a, and a transcript that employers would value more? And um, this is what it would look like um, as you can see, it, it, it accredits the kind of academic achievement of, of students, but it also recognises the, the, the skills that we keep talking about, but we find very difficult to, to value and measure and accredit. 
and and that's you know things like leadership skills problem solving skills all of the skills that people for for over a decade now have been talking about so it 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 pres presents an alternative to the single number grade point average system which they have in the US um, and it also enables the student to show on, on, on their transcript, it's a digital transcript, they can show not just the credits they achieved, but, but what they did to achieve that credit. Um, and I, and I, I think that gives it a, a, a much more detailed uh, and nuanced feel to it. And the interesting part about all this is that, as, as luck would have it, the Mastery Transcript Initiative was about to be piloted this year, um, before anyone could have foreseen the pandemic and the fact that there was no standardized testing in, in the US. So it, it went ahead on a relatively small scale, um, but it was the only game in town really for universities. And, and many of them responded very warmly to it. They said, this gives us a much rounded, much more rounded picture of uh, the students' talents and their dispositions. And they've been heartened by this. And next year, it's going to be rolled out at scale. So there's, there's one example of change that's already happening. Um, the Learning Creates Australia is a really interesting initiative. It's been funded partly by government and by um, uh, benefactors. And as you can see, it's looking for a different um, way to recognize the learner journey and to say, can we assess learning so that all young people can develop and showcase the capabilities that they need? And it, it recognizes that if we change assessment, we will probably change everything. We'll change the pedagogy, we'll change the curriculum. Uh, because for a very long time now, it's been the tail that's been wagging the dog. Um, I think it's a really thrilling initiative and they're already coming up with, with alternative pathways. Um, so that's Australia. Um, one of the more interesting uh, models I feature in, in the book, The Power of Us, and it's been developed by essentially the regulators in Dubai um, for, for independent schools, and they're nearly all independent schools in, in Dubai. Um, and it's called Rahal, uh, and, and it, it is essentially a different way of recognizing the journey that a student can take. So under Rahal, students in Dubai can sign up not just to one school, but to up to four schools, and maybe do you know arts in one school and sciences in another. But it goes much more than, than that. If they have a, a, a particular interest in, say, the arts or athletics or sport, in general, what, what they can do is to have part of their week working on that and have that accredited. It also accredits the learning that happens out of school. And, and I'm going to finish this presentation with some examples of some of the extraordinary things that I think students get up to now when they're not in school and, and, and the, the missed opportunity to accredit that. Well, at Rahal, they're, they're trying to do that. Um, and I guess the really radical thing is they're saying this is for life. We recognize that you should be able to do this and have, have this um, uh, series of accreditation right throughout your working life. So they're, they're looking at micro-credentialing and, and other forms of, of assessment. It's, it's a really radical proposal, but, but it's actually happening now. So, given all that, let's just take a step back and look at the bigger picture and why these changes should be happening now. 
in, in the book, I talk about the remarkable uh, transition that we've made over the last 15 years from sharing what we know, which essentially was, was what built the knowledge economy. And most of that, you know, had, had digital roots, whether it was social media or, you know, digital networks. But the sharing of what we know now, particularly informally, has taken off. And that was followed by sharing what we owned, which became the, the circular economy. You know, and pretty much everything we own now can be shared with other people, including our money. Um, and now we're in a really fascinating position because we're, we're sharing what we make. Uh, and this has led to what the governor of the Bank, former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, described as the artisanal economy. And this is the economy that many of our students are going to be seeking work in. They'll be working for themselves. They'll be reaching a global audience for whatever niche or passion they, 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 are, they are interested in and they can provide products and services within. Um, and, and this is just reflective of this huge upsurge in what I call user innovation. 54% of all new products and services are created by the users, not by the producers. And users have a different mindset to producers. We might talk about that if we, if we have the time left at the end. I think what we've seen with the pandemic, because I wrote the book in March and then I had to rewrite it because of the pandemic, because what I was seeing was absolute affirmation and an underlining of this explosion of user innovation to the point where I think, frankly, communities during the pandemic were outperforming bureaucracies. You know, the thousands of face groups, self-help groups that were set up overnight in the first week of the pandemic. The thousands of people who, who were networked around the country providing scrubs for medical workers when the government failed to provide PPE. Or the students who were making face shields using 3D printing designs that were open source and, and available globally. Tons and tons of examples in the book of, of this mass ingenuity, as I describe it. Well, it, it has implications for education, it seems to me. Um, and we've only got to look at what our young people are doing, I think, to recognise that these implications are significant. Um, so let me just introduce you to people that I've met over the past two years um, and, and what they've done. Uh, the, the young girl at the top, the white girl, she's with a group of Haitian students. Her name's Erin Manuel, and she goes to a, just an ordinary government school in North Carolina. And when she was eight years old, she saw the Haitian earthquake and determined that she was going to do something about it. So she started selling artworks at farmers markets and raised money. She reached out to a school in Haiti and then created a... Uh, uh, a, a partnership between her school and theirs. She's visited uh, Haiti and also uh, Guatemala a number of times now over the past four or five years, because at the age of 15, she established a charitable trust. Um, it's called Reach for the Sun, and it is supporting these uh, economies in times of crisis. Her own particular innovation was to create um, solar-powered charging of um, mobile phones um, so that, you know, in, in national emergencies, they could still communicate with the world. She was doing this at the age of 15. I don't know what you were doing at the age of 15, but I certainly wasn't doing that. 
Um, the young man on the left at the bottom there is Will Stamp. I met Will at his school. He's now at university, but I met Will at his senior school in, uh, in Melbourne. And Will had just discovered three stars by hacking into NASA telescopes. Um, he discovered three stars that nobody had ever um, noticed before. One of them is 300 times bigger than the Earth. You think, how did nobody ever see that? But, but Will's actually done that. And of course, like Erin, all of this stuff is not being accredited or valued in, in his ATAR score. And then the two young men next to Will, I'm going to lump together because the one on the left is Ryan and Jin So Hyung. And the one on the right is uh, Ryan's from uh, Korea. He lives in Seoul with his parents. Uh, he's 19. And the young man on the right is Avi Schiffman. He's 17, lives with his parents um, just outside Seattle. Um, and what was fascinating about these two young men is that they built COVID tracking apps at the initial outbreak um, of the pandemic um, when their governments were, were failing to, to find one. In America, we still don't have an official COVID tracking app, but Abby's is so good and so up to date that Anthony Fauci, the head of the Center for Disease Control, says it's the authoritative source. It's the first place he looks when he needs to um, understand what's going on. Uh, Abby wasn't content with that. Shortly after that, the, the George Floyd murder happened and the Black Lives Matter protests happened. So he built a, 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 a website which was tracking the protests around the US. He, he did these websites in about three days. It's astonishing. It won him the Webby Person of the Year. And when I spoke to Wappy, what was, what was really interesting was that he described himself as a bad student. He said he had a grade point average of about 1.7. Now, GPAs run from a scale of zero to four. So 1.7 is you know, below, well below average. But it seems to me that Avi isn't a bad student. If he, can, if he can be Webby person of the year, he's got enormous talents. It seems to me it's a fault of the system that it can't recognize and value what Avi was doing. Um, we've also got to recognize that over the past three years, we have seen the two largest mass protests in the history of our species, and they were both organized by school children. So the young woman in the center is Emma Gonzalez, um, who was one of the Parklands, Florida kids who got caught up in that horrific mass shooting. Uh, and Emma was one of the leading organizers of the thing called March for Life, which was advocating gun control in the US. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, it was the largest public protest that we'd ever seen. Network, these young people network the way that we could not imagine. And so it was networked all around the world. Um, dozens and dozens of countries took part. Of course, the, the photograph below that is the Chinese chapter of Greta Thunberg's Fridays for Future movement, which grew out of her climate uh, emergency strikes, which took place. Um, and that... It is now the, the largest, I think it was last September, it, it's the largest um, um, out, outpouring of, of mass protests that we've seen. I think there were over 14 million school children who, who uh, went on strike from school that day. And of course, the this kids that are behind me here 
Uh, they're the young people who got the government to do the U-turn over the, the exams fiasco. Um, and it was through their voice and through their advocacy and through their organisation and networks that, that, that levered this change. So I think we have to recognise that our young people are now leading lives that many of us in our youth would just would not have recognised. And I think if we do nothing else with our assessment system, let's find a way to recognise that. So what can you do? I know that as individuals, we're kind of at the mercy largely of government and regulators, but I think there is a lot that we can do. The first thing that we can do is to engage with the users more. I, the, my book is full of examples of what happens when users meet with producers. And let's face it, everyone watching this falls under that umbrella of producer. But what happens when users get together with producers is that innovation becomes accelerated and we create things that, to, to use the phrase of Rahm Emanuel, we couldn't think of doing before. So let's engage with the users. Let's find out what kind of assessment systems will really recognize their strengths. Second, let's, let's use this moment to enlist the support of parents and employers. Um, just before the pandemic happened, I was involved in a thing called the Big Education Conversation, which was a series of national conversations. I hope it's going to get um, restarted after the pandemic's over. But it was, it was fantastic to sit in the room with parents and employers and teachers and talk about the kind of education system that we want going forward. And I think we need to learn from the Mastery Transcript Consortium that it isn't about saying out with the old, in with the new. Let's offer parallel routes, not necessarily replacements. In time, they may come to replace the system that we've got, but let's just offer some alternatives and, and all of us can do that. And then fourthly, let's recognize that ecosystemic change, and we're all talking about ecosystems as the way forward now for for education are made up of you know, a diverse group of stakeholders. Well, if we're gonna have ecosystemic change, we probably need ecosystemic testing, which means we have to get a diverse range of stakeholders who are involved in that. And it moves us inevitably towards a kind of portfolio um, of accreditation. So I'm gonna finish with uh, the words of Greta Thunberg, when she said, and this is when she spoke at the Houses of Parliament last year, Sometimes we just simply have to find a way. The moment we decide to fulfill something, we can do anything. Humans are very adaptable. We can still fix this. And I believe we can still fix our assessment system. And what Greta was describing really eloquently is the power of us. So thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to the Q&A coming up. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast. To keep up to date with the latest information from our Surpass community, visit Surpass.com. We'll be back with another podcast soon. Thank you for listening.